John's Gospel, chapter 17, starting at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with your, the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and have, they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they will be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming now to you, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, them and you've loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. 
I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, that I myself may be in them. Well, let's turn together to John uh, 17, and we're going to look this morning at verses 6 to 19, because we're in the middle of this uh, prayer of the Lord Jesus, and it's a remarkable prayer, because in this prayer, Jesus Christ shows to us, he reveals to us something of his heart. You and I know that if you really want to get to know someone, you pray with them, don't you? Because if someone prays, you get the sense from them of their relationship with the Lord and of their concern for others reflected in how they pray. And that's what we're going to see as we look together at this prayer of the Lord Jesus that comes right at the end of this long section in John 13 to 17, where Jesus is preparing his disciples before he is about to go to the cross and leave them, and then he is sending them out into the world on the mission to share the good news that he is going to entrust to them to go and share with all the world. Someone has described uh, these chapters, John 13 to 17, as the best and fullest sermon ever preached. The best and fullest sermon ever preached, and it's really this kind of a, a final briefing between Jesus and the disciples. And right at the end of it, the last thing he does for them, having come to the end of that extended period of teaching to prepare them for his departure and for their mission, is he prays for them. And so we might say that what is the best sermon ever preached is followed then by the greatest prayer ever prayed. And in this prayer, as we've said, Jesus is revealing his heart to us. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 17, we see heart, Christ's heart for his own mission given to him by the Father. And we saw, as James took us through that a few weeks ago, his great passion for the glory of the Father. And that glory of the Father was going to be made known through Jesus' death on the cross, where he would make it possible for men and women and boys and girls to come to know eternal life through believing in his name. And then in the remainder of this prayer, we're going to split it up into two sections. This morning, verses 6 through to 19. And then God willing, next Sunday morning, verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for two different groups. In verses 6 to 19, our passage this morning, he prays for his followers. And we're going to see how he prays for his immediate followers, his disciples, and he equips them to go into the world with his message on the mission he's going to send them on. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays for all those who believe. And as Jesus prepares his disciples for mission in verses 6 to 19, that's going to be our focus this morning. Now, it's not just that this idea of preparing for mission has come up here in the prayer, because in many ways, this prayer is accumulation of all he's been teaching in chapters 13 to 17. And this idea of going out on this mission has been central to what Jesus has been teaching again and again and again. And now he prepares them to go out with his word. And he does that in this amazing prayer in verses 6 to 19. And in his prayer, he assures them of, of two things. He tells them who they are 
and he wants them to know who they are as they go out on this mission. And then he tells them the content of what he is praying for them in order to give them confidence as they go on their mission. And there'll be our our two points this morning. As Jesus prepares his disciples and as Jesus prepares us for that mission he has for us to go into all the world with his gospel, we find, first of all, in preparing us for that, that he assures us that we belong to God as his people. Verses 6 to 10. That's the first thing he does. I wonder, what is the most encouraging thing anyone has ever said to you? Maybe it was some words that were written by your spouse in a a letter or a card. My wife, Naomi, writes some wonderfully encouraging things on the occasion of my birthday or our wedding anniversary or something like that. They're Lovely things to read. Or maybe it was a word spoken to you by a friend when you were really down and you were helped back onto their feet through those words. Well, in these verses, if you're a Christian this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ by faith, Jesus says something amazing about you. Let's look at it together because he tells you that you belong to God. You belong to God. To Jesus. You belong to the Father, and so you belong to the one true and living God. Jesus says that we belong to the Father. Look with me at verse 6. As Jesus speaks to the Father about his followers, look what he says in the middle of the verse. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. Then jump down with me to verse 9, and Jesus says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world's. But for those you have given me, for they are yours. Notice the tenses there, the the past tense, they were yours. The present tense, they are yours. And so if we are a Christian this morning, we can say that we are the past and present possession of the Father. We belong to the Father. But Jesus says more than that because he also tells us that we belong to him. Look again with me at verse 6. Twice in the verse he says that we belong to him. He says, I reveal to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They have been given to Christ. They were yours. You gave them to me. We have been given to the Savior. And then jumping down again to verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the worlds, but for those you have given me. And once again, we have this thought that we are the past possession of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are the present possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus brings it all together as we read in verse 10, where he says, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Now, who the all are might seem unclear, but given that Jesus has been talking about his own followers in verse 9, And then in the second half of verse 10, he talks about his own followers again. Then surely the all he has in view at the start of verse 10 are his own followers, those who will believe in his name. That's astonishing, this, that that Jesus prays this prayer and he prays it out loud because John, the disciple who is there, can record it down, can't he? And in this prayer, he tells us that we belong to the Father and we belong to him. Christian, is that how you think about yourself this morning? That you are God's possession. That you belong to the living God. 
But we might notice that Jesus says a bit more than that here as well. He doesn't just say that we belong to the Father and belong to him. He says that we are passed from the Father to the Son as a kind of a gift. We belong to the Father, but the Father has given us to Christ. And we belong to Christ, and then he has given us back to the Father. And so we might say that we are a love gift between the persons of the Godhead. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, friends? It's an astonishing thing that the God of heaven says that about us. We belong to him and we are passed between the Father and the Son and then back to the Father as this love gift. If you want to dig more into this, we're looking at something that's called the covenant of redemption. And that's the the term that theologians use to explain this passage and many others that speak of how the Father gives a people to the Son so that he might redeem them. And then having redeemed them through his death on the cross, Jesus gives them back to the Father. And having accomplished that great work of salvation, the Son is given great glory and honour and praise, which is what Jesus refers to at the end of verse 10 where he says, And glory has come to me through them. Friends, this is one of these amazing statements of the Lord Jesus that you just need to chew on for a whole week and digest all that it means. Because we have such small thoughts of ourselves, but see how God thinks of us. We shouldn't have small thoughts. We are the possession of the living God. We have been gifted between the Father and the Son. And we need to keep on remembering that because so many people look for significance and value in the wrong places. And Christians can do the same thing as well. But if you're a Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, these verses are saying incredible things about you. And it's so sad that some look within to try and find value and significance by counting their abilities or accomplishments. It's so sad that others look in the mirror trying to find value by their own physical appearance or or perhaps others look to other people and they look for value and significance in how they think about us. Whether that's expressed through a status or a title or a salary but you will not find lasting value and significance there because there will always be someone who is more accomplished with a better appearance or a stronger reputation. And even if you find you can exceed your immediate circle of peers in some of those ways, everything and anything that you might look to to give value to you will pass away eventually, won't it? Your work, your money, your appearance your strength, your accomplishments will all eventually fade away because thus goes all of humanity. But if you are a Christian this morning, if you are a child of God, there is something about you that will never fade away because it is a declaration and action of the eternal God who never passes away. And that is that you belong to him. So why, we might ask, does Jesus focus so strongly on this thought that we belong to the Father, we belong to him, and we have that value because of that if we're trusting in him? 
Well, here's one reason. Here's one reason. Because I think as we have worked through chapters 13 to 17, we have seen a repeated theme in these chapters has been the appalling treatment that Jesus' followers will experience as they go into the world with the gospel. It's been one of the dominant messages that Jesus has been bringing. And so Jesus has warned as they go out, they will face general rejection. He has said, in this, in, in this world, you will have trouble, John 16, 33. But he's not just warned about that. He has warned about violent opposition. He says, anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And before we face all of that, Jesus wants us to remember that the world's treatment of us is not a reflection of our worth in the eyes of God, which is the only evaluation that matters. Now, for some of us, we've felt this already. We know this rejection and ridicule from family. And we've tried to speak about the Lord Jesus. We've felt that. And it's hard because we place value on those closest to us. And when they reject us, that hurts. For others, maybe you felt something of that rejection as you've gone into the workplace. And whenever you've tried to say just something about Christianity, maybe you've just said something about what you did over the weekend and mentioned that you're in church. You know the kind of rejection you're going to receive about that. People are going to seek to put you down. And when you face that kind of pushback, it hurts. And the temptation is to stop speaking up and to put your head down and to close up. But friends, Christ's assurance here changes that. It gives us courage and strength. The author to the book of Hebrews makes the same point in Hebrews chapter 11 where he speaks what I think are some of the most emotional verses in the scriptures describing what it was like for the Lord's people to live this life of faith, testifying to the Lord, going out with the good news. And what did they receive? What reaction did they get from those around them? Well, let's read of it in Hebrews 11. There were others who were tortured because they were declaring about the Lord, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some face jeers and floggings, even chains and imprisonments. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. But then having said all that, the author turns and says, what does God think about them? The world was not worthy of them. I can't read those verses without being moved, friends. This is what God thinks of you if you're a Christian this morning. Let me ask you this, whose assessment matters? Whose assessment matters? Surely it is God's assessment. We have such small thoughts of ourselves but God says we are not worthy of this world because we are his possession. Jesus wants us to know what he thinks of us as we go out with the good news of the gospel and he sends us into the world, preparing us for what it might be like. He says, remember this, remember who you are. But then having assured us of who we are and what he thinks of us, then he turns to tell us what he is praying for us. 
And as he does that, he gives us great confidence as we go about his mission in verses 11 through to 19. You know, it's always encouraging, isn't it, when someone tells you what they are, that they are praying for you. Those are kind, encouraging words. But it is even more encouraging when someone says, I am praying this for you. When they're specific about the content of what they are praying. And, and Jesus, that's what Jesus is doing here in verses 11 to 19. He is telling us what he is praying for us. So how should we understand the content of Jesus' prayer here? Well, it would be a mistake to take what Jesus prays for us in these verses and turn them into a list of things that we should be trying to do. These are promises of what God has and God will be doing in his followers as we go about his mission. James tells us in his epistle, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And Jesus is the righteous man. Jesus knows God's will perfectly. And so when Jesus prays for these things, these are not things for us to aim for first and foremost. Jesus is offering this prayer to God. He's not offering it to us for us to do something. So in that sense, we don't need to answer this prayer. The Father will answer this prayer. That's why Jesus prays it. So the request that Jesus makes here for us as we go about this mission he has called us to are best seen as promises of what the Father will do as we are about this work. Now, of course, there is always a progressive ongoing element for what he, Jesus prays for here. But even that ongoing progressive element will be what God is doing in us. Now, if we have that framework as we look at these requests of Jesus, they become incredibly encouraging. They become incredibly encouraging because they tell us what God is doing for us as we go into the world to serve him. They are reasons for confidence. And we're given four things that Jesus prays for that give us great confidence. He begins by praying that we will be kept safe in our salvation. Look at verse 11 and 12. Jesus prays, Holy Father, middle of the verse, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Jesus' concern here is that his followers might be secure in their salvation, and he gives us a very good reason to know that we will be safe as we go out with that good news. Because the power that protects us is what power? It is the power of the Holy Father's name. It is the power of the name of God and God's name is tied to his authority. In the Psalms we read, May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So when we read of, of God's name at work, keeping us in our faith. We should be thinking of all of the power of the living God being at work in us to keep us in our salvation as we go and we share the gospel. But Jesus says something more here because he says, you have seen that very power at work in what I have been doing. And that's what we see in verse 12. Because Jesus tells us that he used that power of the name of God to keep his disciples when he was with them. 
so that through all the dangers they faced, he kept them. Whether they were dangers outside of themselves or whether they were dangers inside of themselves, he kept them. Just think of how fickle the disciples were, of how prone to wonder and disobedience they were. But Jesus used the power of God's name to keep them. And he is saying that same power will be at work in us as we go about that work of mission. And Jesus didn't lose any of them, did he? Except, as we read there in verse 12, 1. There Jesus says, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Who's Jesus referring to here? Well, he's referring to Judas, isn't he? Referring to Judas, who just a few um, minutes earlier had gone out to betray the Lord Jesus. He is the one who is doomed to destruction. And this phrasing of being doomed to destruction reminds us that even Judas' betrayal of Jesus was part of God's plan. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. God had intended this is how Jesus would be arrested. And so in that sense, because God planned it and prophesied it, well, Judas was never really given to Jesus to keep, was he? So his departure doesn't show that Jesus isn't able to keep his followers. Jesus didn't lose Judas. He was never truly given to him. So even the example of Judas shows us the keeping power of Jesus because he didn't lose any of the disciples in that sense. And so he is saying the Father's keeping power that was at work in keeping the disciples will be at work in you as you go on that mission, which gives us confidence that God will keep us. So as we go out to serve Jesus, as we go to declare his name, We don't need to fear that someone could ask us a question that might make us doubt everything and turn away from the Lord. Promises to keep, doesn't he? By his power. And we don't need to fear the sword that that might challenge us to deny the Lord Jesus on pain of death because he will keep us through that as well. We can be confident that our Father will keep us in our salvation by the power of his name. That's the first promise. But then the second promise is, in verse 11, that he will keep us safe in unity. Keep us safe in unity. Jesus prays there that the Father might protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Remember, the context here is going out on mission and he's sending his disciples into the world. So Jesus is praying here for unity for God's people as they go on God's mission. Now, this request here for unity points forward to a a fuller prayer for unity that we will come to next week in verses 20 to 23. And so we'll pick it up in more detail then, but let's just observe here that that clause that they may be one as we are one, is probably, I think, one of the most misused statements in all of John's Gospel. Because that statement there is not a call for ecumenical unity where we lay aside our commitment to the truth and join in one great worldwide church that doesn't stand on anything specific in that sense. 
that's not what's going on here. It's been said that this might be the greatest prayer that is yet to be answered, but that's not the way to understand it. Because remember what we said at the start as we came to this section, these are Jesus' prayers for his people to the Father as they go about mission, and they're things that God is doing and, and will do. So this prayer has been answered and is being answered as the church of Jesus Christ goes together, united around the truth of the gospel, to share about Jesus. Now it's true that that many horrible sins harm our present experience of unity with one another. But the promise of this prayer is that the Father will protect the unity of his people as we go about that work of mission. That's what Jesus is saying here. So we're kept in our salvation, we're kept in our unity, and then as we go about the mission, we are kept safe from the evil one. Verse 15. Jump down there to verse 15, and Jesus says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The devil is, is always trying to distract us from God's mission, isn't he? And he does that by, by stirring up two main things in us. He seeks to stir up cowardice so that we don't speak when we should. And he seeks to stir up compromise so that we don't speak something true when we speak. And, and the devil knows how to make those temptations strong. He will use fears about our finances, fears about our family, and even fears about our future, and anything else he can to try and push us into cowardice or compromise when it comes to sharing the gospel. But friends, Jesus' prayer for protection from the devil is stronger than any weapon the devil has at his disposal. And that's a great source of confidence. Because even if we find ourselves giving into the temptation to sin through cowardice or compromise for a time, the promise here is that that, that, that giving in will not be final. We might remember Jesus' words to Simon Peter in Luke 22, where he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Isn't it a great thing to remember that even Simon Peter, when he turned there in cowardice for a time, denying the Lord, was then restored. He was prayed for, he was strengthened, he was protected from the devil in that sense. And Jesus' prayer for protection from the devil assures us that we, as we go out with the gospel, we don't need to fear the tempter. We can go with faithfulness into the world with Christ's message. So we've seen the Lord Jesus preparing us for mission. He has been preparing us through this prayer by confidence that he will be kept in salvation. By confidence we'll be kept safe in unity. By confidence we'll be kept safe from the evil one. Then fourthly and finally, with confidence we will be kept through sanctification. That's verses 17 through to 19. As Christians have thought in the past about how they are to serve God in the world, some people have thought the best thing to do 
rather than living in the world and being about this mission that God has given to us, that they thought the best thing to do is that the dangers are so great for corruption from the world that the only way to protect yourself is to be entirely separate from the world. And that's why some have established monasteries and nunneries as institutions where you can withdraw entirely from the world. Now, I I don't meet many Christians today who find the idea of living in a monastery or a nunnery appealing. However, I do find in my own heart, uh, and maybe you find in yours, a desire to draw back from the world and to close up the drawbridge because it just feels safer to do that. Perhaps we think, well, there are so many dangers. It will be better to be not of the world and, well, not in the world. And yes, there are going to be times when we need to flee from temptation. But that doesn't mean that we withdraw entirely. The Lord Jesus addresses that very temptation to withdraw entirely from the world in these verses. He says, verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. And then again in verse 18, positive, he says, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus sends us to be in the world, but not of the world. But notice, friends, as he does that, he makes wonderful provision for our protection from sin and for our growth in holiness. How does he do that? In two ways in verses 17 to 19. He gives us the sanctifying word of God. Look at verse 17. Jesus says to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us his word to protect us from sin and to grow us in grace as we go out and serve him in the world. I baked a cake this week, which is a rare thing, but I baked a cake. And I made up the mixture, all on my own, and I poured it into the cake tin that had one of those cake liners around it. And as it went in the middle, it was just in a clump in the middle. And uh, Naomi said, Matthew, you've got to press the cake into the corners of the tin with your spatula. Otherwise, when it cooks, it's going to be a very lumpy cake and not very appealing. So I did, I got my spatula and I pushed it into all the edges of the cake tin. And as I was doing that, I was thinking, isn't that a wonderful picture of what the Spirit of God does when he answers this prayer of the Lord Jesus? As he takes God's word of truth and presses it into all the areas of our lives so that we might be sanctified as we serve the Lord in the world. Now you and I know that's not always a pleasant thing, is it? <laughs> to have God's word coming into those areas of our lives. It feels sometimes like we've been, we've been cut open and, and laid bare in that sense. But it's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing. Praise God that he has given us this sanctifying word to protect us and to grow us in holiness. Let's have that word going through our lives in that sense. But But Jesus sanctifies us in another way too, not only through the word of God, but also through his life and death. Because there in verse 19, he says, For them I sanctify myself, so that they too may be truly sanctified. 
What's this a reference to? Well, this is a reference to Jesus' life and death. That's his sanctification. His perfect life lived in holiness and his death on the cross for our sins. And right at the end of this prayer, he is reminding us, assuring us that what he is about to go and do on the cross will be the means of our sanctification so that we can know God now and into all of eternity so that we know that we are secure as we step into the world on his mission. Because by his perfect sacrifice, he makes us truly sanctified. He makes us fit to know God now and into eternity. And so in his word and through his death, Jesus gives us confidence in God's work of sanctification so that we can go out into the world serving the Lord, carrying his message, speaking of his truth in the knowledge that he will preserve us by his word and through his work on the cross. Friends, at the start of every school term, uh, Naomi and I will try and prepare our children for the term ahead by making sure they have everything ready for what they're going to do. And we'll get out all the uniform and make sure there aren't any holes in the shirts and that the ties are still the right length. (laughs) We'll get the school bags out and we'll check everything's in there. We'll get the water bottles out and make sure they're not leaking anymore and there's no mold in them or something. And then we'll get get all the, the school equipment the pencil case, and we'll check that the rulers are still the right length and not been chopped in half and that the pens and pencils are still all adequate for what they have to do. But you know what we find? Every term we do that, we've missed something. And the boys go to school and they're not totally prepared. Isn't it striking in these verses, friends, that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't do that? He prepares us perfectly for the mission that he has us to do. He prepares us to go into all the worlds with his good news of the gospel. And how does he do that? By assuring us of who we are. We are the possession of the living God. Whatever the world might say, we are his. However your heart responds to how you're treated, you are his. It's a great thing to know. And as we go forth and we feel all the dangers of being unsteady in our salvation, maybe he says, I'm going to keep you. As we feel the the pressure to be pulled apart, we said, I'm going to keep you together in unity. As we feel the temptations of the evil one to cowardice or compromise, he says, I'm going to hold you in my truth. And then as we feel the temptation to sin, maybe, I'm going to sanctify you. I've done so through the cross and I do so each day through my word. What a wonderful saviour we have. That friends, in these closing moments, with the cross before him and all that would entail, he thinks of us, he strengthens us and he says go. Let's go forth with that confidence in him. Will you join me as I pray before we sing? Our Lord and our God, how we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the sight you have given us of the heart of our Saviour for us. Lord Jesus, how we bless you that you have prayed this prayer 
that we might go into all the world with great confidence. Lord, forgive us, we pray. When we find in our hearts that cowardice, maybe even that, that temptation to compromise, Lord, give us great courage, we ask, that all the world may come to hear of the Lord Jesus as we go and make him known. So seal your word to our hearts, we pray. Use it for good, we ask, this week and indeed every day of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen.